The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Dr. Bethany Harris is the Director of Education at Callaway Gardens, where she oversees the Cecil B. Day Butterfly Center and the Callaway Gardens Discovery Center. She leads the horticultural education programs and workshops for guests and visiting school children. She is also the director of Callaway Gardens Volunteer Program. Dr. Harris is passionate about teaching horticulture and pollinator roles in our environment, along with the use of floral resources for insects. She has earned BS, MS, and PhD degrees in horticulture and entomology from the University of Georgia, which makes her a triple UGA dog. We will get started with episode 25. Designing a Garden That Fights Off Harmful Insects with Dr. Bethany Harris on the Garden Question Podcast in just a moment. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question Podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Bethany, how do you design a smarter garden that fights off harmful insect pests? A number of things to think about when you're creating a beneficial insect garden and you're trying to attract insects that are going to fight those insect pests. The first thing is making sure that you provide the floral resources. It's important to provide flowering plants that are going to attract many of these beneficial insects that we'll get to talk about a little later, but these insects that are going to fight off are harmful or are pest insects. Starting with a variety, and I always tell people you want ground covers, you want annuals and perennial plants, you also want areas that are going to provide cover. Trees and shrubs are a good way to incorporate areas of cover for those insects. Planting plants that are really going to be floral resources and really invite those beneficial insects into your garden. So that's one thing. I mentioned cover, but you want to think about just like we live in a house and we have shelter and protection, beneficial insects, those insects that are going to fight off pests are going to require that as well. Thinking about what are ways that we can provide cover in our garden. The other thing that I think is super important is incorporating native plants as well. I kind of live by utilizing annuals and perennials, but also utilizing native plants that would be attractive to these beneficial insects as well. What are the advantages to creating a garden that attracts beneficial insects? One of the advantages in my mind is we're always trying to eliminate, especially at Callaway, I see this all the time, we really try to eliminate pesticides. That's one of the biggest things is to really eliminate those because those can affect really other parts of our environment. One thing that I like to do is really to try to attract these beneficial insects because that's a natural form of pest control. If I 
invite these beneficial insects into my garden. Um, they're keeping down pests like aphids or mealybugs that we struggle with and that a lot of times we routinely have to spray for. One of the biggest advantages of having beneficial insects in your garden is really eliminating the need for pesticides or hopefully reducing the amount of pesticides that we're using. You're looking for natural enemies to the harmful insects. That's completely right. What type of natural enemies may already be present in our garden? One of my favorites, and for most people when we see these, we tend to kind of have a love for them and appreciation for them, are lady beetles. The convergent lady beetle is one of the lady beetles that we have right here. It's a native in the southeastern United States, and it really is a primary beneficial insect and natural enemy, specifically on aphids. An adult lady beetle can eat between 30 and 40 adult aphids a day. They're really influential in keeping that pest control and keeping those aphid numbers down. Really being mindful about the types of beneficial insects that we have in our garden, ways that we can attract them, and also making sure that we educate other people, like our neighbors, that may see the lady beetle and say, hey, I don't know if this is good or bad. Squish. I'm going to crush it. So educating public and other people about these beneficial insects and really their benefit in our garden. When you say lady beetle, are you talking the ladybug? That's completely right. Yep. So the typical red and black beetle, you'll see the black spots. That's exactly what I'm talking about. This time of year, what's really cool and attracting the monarch butterfly to their yard Monarchs, their host plant is the milkweed, Glypheus tuberosa. We call it butterfly milkweed, which is a native plant here. During this time of year, what happens is you get milkweed aphids all over that milkweed. One thing that you'll notice if you have milkweed in your garden is you may see lady beetles kind of hanging out there and you may be wondering, well, why are they just hanging around this plant? And it's because of those aphids. You'll see lady beetles a lot of time or ladybugs a lot of times around your milkweed, especially this time of year. People will buy lady beetles or lady bugs and and then release them in their garden. Is that a good idea? Funny you should ask that. In fact, we've utilized lady beetles at Calway Gardens, and I'll tell you in a little bit how we did that. In a garden setting, not to say that that's wrong to do and not to say that you won't have pest control, but I will say you can't control where those lady beetles go, right? So when you release them into your garden, they may be over at your neighbor three blocks down. That's the one difficult thing about purchasing beneficial insects, especially if you're going to release them in an open setting like a backyard or a garden because you don't really have control of where they go. Calway Gardens, what we do is we actually use lady beetles regularly in our conservatory. If you have a greenhouse space, that's a great way to use lady beetles because it's an enclosed space. And we do have successful biological control and really successful pest control by utilizing those. And so those have been a great resource for us because as you can imagine, at the Cecil B. Day Butterfly Center, you've got butterflies in a conservatory and you can't use insecticides, right? We use a lot of beneficial insects really to help us aid in pest control. So the goal is to attract natural predators into your garden. What are some of the ornamental plants or annuals or perennial plants that would work well for attracting beneficial insects? Really a great question. There are a variety of them. Some of my favorites that do really well here in Georgia are salvias or sages. I love salvia hot lips. There's also salvia black and bloom. Those are two that are readily on the market that you'll see. Very hardy, do really well and are very drought tolerant, especially here in Georgia where we have all this heat. They're great nectar sources, but they also attract those beneficial insects as well. Those are two great perennials that you can use. In regards to annuals, marigolds are really a great attractor for a lot of beneficial insects. If you're looking for more trees and shrubs, crepe myrtles are great in vitex. 
Those are two that are great nectar sources that provide that flowering resource beneficial insects are attracted to. Lantana and the butterfly bush, you can't go wrong with those just because of the nectar sources that they provide. When you're in the design or imagining or wanting to add to, those are your top priority plants. For sure. Those are definitely ones that are tried and true. What I like about them too is most of the ones I just mentioned are perennials. So if you're wanting to kind of create a garden that you have limited time maybe to maintain a garden, these are great because they come back from year to year. Drought tolerant here in the South, I think that's a major problem we have is you start a garden in the spring, you're super excited about it. Then by summer, it's so hot. And so we struggle with that. Very drought tolerant nature. They really do grow well here in the Southeast and they do well in Georgia throughout our USDA zone areas. What kind of results are you seeing when incorporating native wildflowers into your garden? During my PhD, I worked on a project with Dr. Bodie Panisi at UGA and we worked with several native southeastern wildflowers. We saw really great success with a lot of these flowers. In fact, some of the ones that really did well, scarlet sage, a type of salvia that really performed well. It not only was a great bloomer, but we did see beneficial insects like lady beetles and green lacewings attracted to that. Uh, helenium, I don't know if you're familiar with that plant, but it's often referred to as sneezeweed. It's very dwarf-like, so it stays pretty small. The great thing about it is just the blooms that produced over time was pretty continuous throughout the summer season. So bloomed June, July, and into August. That's one of the things too, when you're creating a garden, you want to make sure you have plants that are blooming overlapping bloom time. You want something blooming in the spring. We move to the summer. You want to make sure you have plants in your garden that are blooming then and then even into the fall. We also use asters very well and we found those to be super successful in attracting beneficial insects because they bloom kind of later in the season and August and September provide that nectar source. We had two different ones that we used in our study. Frost aster, which is a white star-like aster, really great plant, and then New England aster, and it's a purple color. Those were two that we found did really well. The great thing about them is from late August, September, and October, we had blooms. It's hard in the fall. I think a lot of gardeners struggle in the fall with really trying to find plants that can be attractive to both pollinators and beneficial insects, but that continuously bloom. Asters and sedums are some of my favorite because they just continuously bloom and they do provide that nectar source. If a harmful pest continues to linger around the garden, do you want to go ahead and spray or what do you need to do about that? One of the things that I really try to do as much as possible, and I'll give you an example, is at Callaway, we have our Pioneer Log Cabin garden and we plant squash routinely. We continue to have problems with squash bugs. Even though we had all the nectar sources there really to attract the beneficial insects, we still had problems with them. And I really try to utilize manual removal if possible. One of the tricks that I found, especially when you're trying to remove small eggs, the squash bug has is utilizing packing tape. As crazy as that is, wrap that packing tape around your hand and you're able to remove those pests. I know that can be challenging, especially if you're not there consistently and constantly to check your garden. If we do have to apply some type of pesticide or insecticide, we really try to utilize a horticultural soap or oil. Great thing about the horticultural soaps and oil is you have to apply them more frequently, but they're not as toxic to pollinators, to our butterflies, to our beneficial insects. So utilizing a product like a horticultural soap and oil, and you can purchase those in your local garden center stores. The other thing to be mindful is if you do have to apply a soap or oil, like the one I'm talking about, is to apply it early in the morning when your pollinators and your beneficial insects are going to be less active or late in the evening. Also, just be mindful about the temperature when you're applying. One thing we have to be careful of in the conservatory 
when applying these products is when we have very high temperatures, we're talking in the upper 80s, 90s, those products can actually burn the foliage of the plant. We have to be very careful about that. We try to apply those either earlier in the morning or on a cloudy day when we do not have those hot conditions in the conservatory. There's another product that we've just recently started using called Garlic Guard. It's a very biological product. It consists of garlic primarily its main ingredient. The way it works is it kind of helps to smother those insects. It's a product that, again, you'd have to kind of routinely apply because it is not toxic to many of your beneficial insects. And also it wouldn't be toxic to your bees or to your butterflies as well. Tell us about the Cecil B. Day Butterfly Center at Callaway Gardens. If you've never been to the Butterfly Center, definitely come out. We would love to have you. Just to kind of give you a little bit of history about the Butterfly Center, Cecil B. Day, who is founder of the Days Inn of America, him and his wife commissioned the Butterfly Center. It opened to the public in 1988. They had gone to trips throughout Europe and really seen their beautiful conservatories and said, we don't have anything like this in the United States. We want to have a conservatory that people can go and learn about butterflies and learn about horticulture and gardening. What's very unique about our environment, if you walk in the conservatory, you may say, I've never seen some of these plants. It's a tropical conservatory. So you're going to see primarily tropical plants as you walk through. We had papayas and coffee and pineapple, a really neat place if you love learning more about horticulture and about plants. As you walk through, you won't see native butterflies. You won't see any of the butterflies you may have seen out in your butterfly garden or out in your garden area because all the butterflies that we receive at the Butterfly Center are actually tropical butterflies. We receive butterflies from about seven butterfly farms across the world. This includes Costa Rica, Ecuador, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Surprisingly, we get them in the chrysalis stage, which is the third stage of the butterflies. After it passes from the caterpillar, that chrysalis stage is what we get. We get shipments usually twice a week on Thursdays and Fridays in a FedEx box. The conservatory, in my opinion, is just so unique because it is really a tropical paradise and a tropical experience. It gives guests the opportunity to see butterflies that they wouldn't see in their own backyard. My family and I have visited several times and it's always been a lot of fun and a lot of recollections of some funny instances that happened in the conservatory in previous visits. There's a lot to see there and it's a really good family outing. If you haven't been, I would go. Definitely. Yeah, it really is. And it, it consistently changes. One thing to kind of note about the butterfly center is we have different butterfly months. Certain month we really fill the conservatory with different types of butterflies. In September, our blue morpho was the butterfly of the month. In April, we have paper kites. It's kind of always changing and it's really a great outing because you really do get to see some unique butterflies that you wouldn't get to see unless you travel across the globe. So really kind of memorable experience, but also just an educational experience as well. How do you celebrate or what's around the event of a Blue Morpho butterfly? Blue Morpho Month is kind of one of our biggest months at the Cecil B. Day Butterfly Center. Starting mid-August, we typically start getting Blue Morphos in the conservatory. And as you go through September and even through mid-October, if you walk through the conservatory, you're going to see these bright Blue Morphos. To kind of tell you a little bit about them is they are native to Ecuador and Costa Rica. So that's typically where we receive them from when we get them in our conservatory. They're one of the 
largest butterflies in the world. Their wings uh, range from about four to five inches in size, and they're unique for that reason. Of course, they're stunning and beautiful. The other cool thing is that these morphos actually don't feed on flowers like our butterflies do here. They feed on fruit. We've got fruit baskets as you go throughout the conservatory filled with pineapples and oranges and grapefruit. So they're feeding on the nectar from those sources. They're very unique. It's great just to come through and if you get the opportunity in September, but then we do a couple special events around the month too. We have two receptions that we offer typically on Saturdays from 6 to 7th in September. We offer people the opportunity to wine and dine with the butterflies. They get to learn more about the blue morphos. We do a blue morpho release because those blue morphos are attracted to fruit juices like grape juice or wine, you'll see those blue morphos dive right into those glasses as people are walking through. So really incredible experience. We also have our Butterfly Festival at the end of September as well. This is an event really centered towards educating the public about butterflies and creating butterfly gardens. This event is family-filled and family-centered. We have games, uh, crafts. We have about 14 environmental vendors that come. Great opportunity for families to get out and really learn more about the blue morphobe, also about our native butterflies as well. The outside of the conservatory is a native butterfly garden. That's right. We do have a native butterfly garden. Our inside, of course, is tropical. Our outside, we have it filled with a lot of the host plants of our native butterflies. If you're walking through, you might see passion vine, which is the host plant of the Gulf fritillary butterfly. You may see some fennels like bronze fennel and dills because that's one of the host plants of the swallowtail butterfly. You'll see many of the host plant as you walk through. We have pipe vine out in our gardens. As you walk through, you may see pipe vine caterpillars and milkweed for the monarchs. It's really neat. Everything is science. To me, it's a great way as a gardener think about, all right, I'm wanting to create a butterfly garden or create a garden that attracts beneficial insects and pollinators. What are some of the plants and nectar sources I can add? You'll see a lot of native plants as well as a mix of annual perennials, wildflowers, and even some shrubs and trees. It's a great place to develop those ideas for your own garden. Definitely. I use it quite frequently. In the summer, typically in June and July, every Friday at nine o'clock, we do a butterfly gardening class. You actually get to walk through the garden with one of our horticulturists, the Butterfly Center, and learn more about really how to create the perfect butterfly garden. The conservatory is a closed environment, and it has to be extremely challenging for controlling outbreaks of harmful insects. What successful strategies do you use to keep them at bay? A successful strategy that has worked really well for us are, are utilizing beneficial insects. We routinely apply lady beetles as well as parasitic wasps. Parasitic wasps typically are going to feed on eggs of small caterpillars and other small insects. We routinely release those into the conservatory throughout our kind of our problem areas where we may be having pest issues more readily. We've seen great success over time with doing that and just continuously staying on top of it as well. Another thing to do is if we have pest outbreak and we're just having trouble really getting it under control is utilizing some of those more non-toxic products like neem oil or horticultural soaps and oils has worked well with us. We really do try to limit the amount of pesticides or insecticides that we're applying. If you have that pesky pest that just stays and lingers and you've tried manual removal, maybe you've tried beneficial insects and you just can't seem to really stop that outbreak, then those products have worked well for us. Are those considered biological controls or the predatory insects or the are they considered biological control or both? 
Define biological control for me. Biological control is the use of native insects, native, and typically these are beneficial insects. So these are going to be insects um, like lady beetles or, or praying mantises or green lacewings or some of these parasitic wasps like I talked about. They're native to our natural environment. It's this process of utilizing those to control some of our tough pests that we have in our gardens. Instead of utilizing pesticides, the utilizing natural enemies is a great way to do this. And that really is what biological control is, is it's utilizing these native natural enemies like lady beetles and green lacewings to help us really fight pest control. The wasp you're talking about, is that the typical wasp we would see building a nest on the overhang of our house? Parasitic wasps are typically a lot smaller than that. And we have two different types here that you typically see in Georgia. And I would say maybe about the size of a lady beetle, maybe a little larger. They're definitely smaller than a yellow jacket and smaller than a honeybee. So pretty small in size. And we have two types. They're called ichneumonid and burconid wasps. If you've ever seen a tomato hornworm, and you may have seen the white little capsules coming out of a tomato hornworm, that is a parasitic wasp. And so what these parasitic wasps do is they use their stinger and they will parasitize or sting eggs of pests as well as caterpillars. They're really, really important in kind of fighting a lot of our egg pests and, and our caterpillar pests. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked a little bit about habitats and things that beneficial and pollinator insects like. Could you expand on that and give us an idea of what we need to be thinking of for our own gardens to have an environment and promote beneficial insects there? Insects are very similar to humans. We need water, food, shelter, or cover, as well as a, an environment really in order to survive. And insects, and specifically our beneficial insects, and as well as our pollinators and even butterflies really require this. One thing that I found is really just starting out kind of talking about food is you want to have really good sources of nectar and pollen. You want to plant plants that produce pollen, but also are flowering and produce nectar. You can do that in a variety of ways. I like to include everything from ground covers, annuals, and perennials that are herbaceous. I like to include woody shrubs and trees into my garden. And really creating these vegetative layers is a lot of times what we refer to that are going to serve as a source of nectar for your pollinators, but also attract some of those pest insects that are going to be food sources for our beneficial insect. Want to make sure we're providing that. Of course, water, super important. One of the easiest ways I found to kind of provide water in a garden for beneficial insects, so pollinators and butterflies. I know a lot of people have put it puddling areas. That works very well. Flagstones work well. What I like about flagstones is they collect water, but they don't collect enough water where you have a problem, like a mosquito problem, typically. And boulders are small stones that collect water. And then utilizing plants that collect water. Two that come to mind and that have worked really, really well in my garden and have kind of served as an area for beneficial insect to take up water are elephant ears. They work really well because you can think of those elephant ears being kind of cup-shaped where they catch that water. And then heuchera. There's a lot of different colors of heuchera. Beautiful plant. It has cup-shaped leaves that will help to kind of catch water. That's a great way to kind of create this puddling or water area for these beneficial insects. Another thing I mentioned is shelter and cover. To me, there's two ways you can do this. Trees and shrubs, phytex, the butterfly bush, crepe myrtles. Those are just great because they flower. Also provide a source of cover. So providing trees and shrubs and making sure that 
you have these areas that these insects can not only find protection in, but they also can overwinter in. And when I say overwinter, that means that they can go to and survive the winter. It is very important. Another thing that I've done successfully, I've utilized the commercially available insect hotels or insect boxes. They're readily available on the market, typically at your local nursery centers. You can buy these. They work for pollinators. You'll see areas where there's drilled holes in these boxes where pollinators can actually nest. Some of them will have straw or other areas where beneficial insects like lady beetles, earwig, green lacewing can actually nest in. So those work really well to really attract these beneficial insects. Insects are cold-blooded, so they don't have the ability to really regulate their own body temperature, but they rely on the sunlight to do this. Creating areas where insects can sun is very important. What I mean by that is you have a gravel area in your garden or maybe some flagstone areas. Typically butterflies, you'll see this happen a lot. You see this a lot with bees, but even our beneficial insects do this as well. You may see them sitting for a long time and wondering why are they sitting there? And a lot of times what they're doing is they're warming themselves and they're warming their body temperature so they'll be able to move and start flight. That's really important as well as create overall environment and garden that really focuses on attracting and can be a beneficial insect haven. More with Bethany right after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Bethany, today I saw my first monarch in my garden. Have they arrived at Callaway yet? Yeah, so we are just starting the monarchs. In fact, I saw one yesterday as I was walking through the outdoor butterfly garden. And this is the best time. If you haven't planted your milkweed or gotten it in the ground yet, make sure to get it in the ground. Usually by mid-October, those butterflies have kind of moved on towards Mexico. They've made their way back. Typically, September and October is when we see them here in Georgia. What we've done in our outdoor butterfly garden, the Butterfly Center is we've gone through and planted our native milkweed. There's a couple milkweed that you want to make sure if you're thinking about planting a butterfly garden in the future or thinking about purchasing milkweed and you want to make sure you have that host plant, which is the plant that the monarch butterfly lays its eggs on. There are a couple that I like. One is Asclepius tuberosa, which is butterfly milkweed. It's a native to the southeastern United States. A really great plant. It beautiful orange flowers. It also reseeds itself over time. Um, what I like about it is that from year to year, I really don't have to do a whole lot of replanting because it's a perennial, but it also recedes. You may see it popping up in other areas of your garden. It is a very hardy plant. And so make sure to get those out because those monarch butterflies right now are really looking for nectar sources as well as an area to lay their eggs and caterpillars. And another one is swamp milkweed. It's also a native to the southeastern United States and to Georgia. Great plant and really important for those monarch butterflies. Do y'all tag butterflies there at Callaway? We actually have started doing this over the last couple years. This is really a great opportunity if you're interested in learning more about monarchs, learn about creating a butterfly garden, and learn about the migration pattern of the monarch. One thing that we do is we teach the public as well as our school students about monarch migration. And one way we do that is through tagging. If you've ever heard of monarchwatch.org, you can purchase tags from there. Callaway does this this September through October on Thursdays and Fridays. We have staff members out helping 
helping families collect monarch butterflies. And we'll put this little small tag. It almost looks like a yard sale tag, a tiny tag on their wing. That tag has a number. As the butterfly migrates, maybe it moves to Alabama. Someone finds that butterfly and sees that number. They can report that number back to Monarch Watt. It's a way to be able to see migration over time. And it's a really neat opportunity to, to be a part of. Harvested some milkweed seed and I want to plant it. What's the best way to do that? What we like to do at Callaway is we'll collect our own seed or sometimes we purchase seed. Typically start ours in the greenhouse, but if you've got a ledge of a windowsill, that works great at your home. One thing to remember about milkweed seed is it really requires sunlight in order to germinate. One of my biggest gardening mistakes probably throughout my time of creating butterfly gardens and beneficial insect gardens is I went to plant my milkweed seed and I buried it all the way down. I I planted it like I would plant cucumber or a squash seed and that's not the way to go about it. What you want to do is you can utilize a standard potting mix. You want to place those seeds on the surface of the soil. You don't really want to cover them and you just have to be careful, of course, when you're watering. What you'll see is over time, once that seed receives that sunlight, that it'll begin to germinate. If you get milkweed going, you don't have to really worry about purchasing seed. You can collect your own. The fall, getting towards September and October is a great time to harvest seed. If you haven't already, if you got milkweed, start thinking, okay, I want to harvest seed for next year. Pod of milkweed, it'll start drying out and you'll actually see that pod kind of explode. Seeds starting um, to come out. It also has the chaff of the seed. It's white fluffy seed. I like to use a stocking and what I'll do is I'll put the chaff and the seed in a stocking and that'll help move that seed through and it helps to pull that chaff from the seed and then I'll stick the seed in a Ziploc bag and place it in the refrigerator until next spring or until next summer once I'm ready to germinate that seed. That's a great way to save time, save money, also kind of expand your butterfly garden and, and your beneficial insect garden. You're using the stocking as a sieve to remove the white fluffy part of the seed. Yeah, it does. It helps to remove that white chaff. Really a great way to kind of collect that seed. And one of the the coolest things to me about milkweed is that once you get it going, it starts popping up everywhere. Birds will carry it. It gets windblown. You'll see seeds starting to pop up. Tell people when you're putting milkweed in a garden, make sure you put it in an area. You don't mind if it, it starts popping up, not in a tight area, but in an area where you have lots of space because it will continue to kind of pop up and reseed over time. We've talked about the beneficial insects and say accelerate that process and go ahead and purchase insects. Where would be some good sources to do that? There's some great sites. One of the ones that we use regularly at Callaway is called Arbico. It's A-R-B-I-C-O organics.com and planetnatural.com. And those, you will be able to purchase the beneficial insects. And the great thing about them is they're very speedy, very reliable. You order the beneficial insects one day, see them the next day. So they're overnighted. They provide specific instructions also on how to put them out and what areas to target. They'll also give recommendations of how many beneficial insects you should buy per square feet. You know the the square foot area in your garden that you're wanting to release them or then if you have a greenhouse space, you can actually determine that and then they'll tell you how many beneficial insects. They have convergent lady beetles that I talked about a little earlier. We've ordered parasitic wasps from them with success. What is a good source for wildflower seed? 
working at the UGA Griffin campus and during my PhD, I worked with Dr. Panisi on several different wildflower projects. We surveyed 32 different wildflower species and they were either native to Georgia or native to the southeastern United States. One of the companies that we were able to purchase from was called Everwild and it's E-V-E-R-W-I-L-D-E. What I like about their site is they break it up into what area you live in. They package seed individually. So if you go to a garden center, you might see a big bag of seed that says Southeastern Wildflower Mix or Butterfly Wildflower Mix. Sometimes you want to kind of specialize what you have in your garden. One of my favorites that I love for beneficial insects, also for pollinators and butterflies, is Rudbuckia triloba or, or the black-eyed Susan. It's a perennial plant. Instead of getting that in a mix where you get other seed types, you can actually buy that seed individually. And so that really helps as you're kind of planning out your garden or maybe you're wanting to really create a wildflower haven in your backyard. Not to say that I'm against these seed mixes by any means. They work very well. One of the things that I found a lot of times you spread that seed mix throughout your landscape. The plant and the seed in these seed mixes, they kind of outcompete each other and some plants that remain small and then you've got taller plants, so they're outcompeting each other for sunlight and for resources. That's where I really enjoyed and like to kind of select different seeds and be able to plant those individually in my garden rather than as a mix. Is that research been published yet or is it available in a bulletin of any sort? This research, when I was a part of it, was at the second year working on that research. I believe they're about their fifth year now. They haven't published as far as I'm aware. They wanted to survey the wildflower research over a five-year period to assess not only do these wildflowers attract beneficial insects and pollinators, but how well do they grow in our native environment in the southeast. They wanted to look over a five-year period. and All of the wildflower species that we worked with were perennial. They also wanted to determine how well these did in the top resources or the top wildflowers and potentially even work with seed companies to create their own mix based on this research. Do you have your top five or top 10 wildflowers that you would recommend? One of the ones that I think is just really a tried and true is your Rudbuckia triloba. It's a native to the southeast, reseeds over time, very drought tolerant plant, and it's a great summer resource. It's one of my favorite. Another one we saw did really well is Monarda or bee balm. Bee balms are great for a lot of your pollinators, of course. They did really, really well. It's in the salvia families. Bee balms are going to kind of reproduce and really establish over time. The sneezeweed alenium was another one that was really good for us. It stayed about, I would say, no more than two foot high tall. So kind of a dwarf species that did well. Just the number of blooms it produced was amazing. A top plant for pollinators, but also for beneficial insects. Salvia, we had a scarlet sage salvia that did really well. And it, of course, is perennial. Bright red in color, beautiful salvia. The bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds really enjoyed that plant. And then make sure that you're planting sources for fall and that will carry you into the fall months. And so those asters, the frost aster and the New England aster were really tried and true for providing that bloom during those months. One of my favorites, and I think it gets missed when people are thinking about planting, uh, eupatoriums or joe pie weed. I think people consider it a weed, so a lot of times they don't often plant it. Joe pie weeds are a great, great plant. There's several different species of Joe pie weed that are native to Georgia and do really, really well here in this area. How do you start those? Broadcasts on bare earth? 
in our research. We planted them in the greenhouse, got them started, and then transplanted them into the field. Once they were about 12 to 14 inches in height, we were able to separate individual plants. At Callaway, we've actually recently started wildflower field there. We broadcasted seed on the field. This is our first year doing that in an area. And we did use a mix, but we also purchased individual seeds of, of these different species and broadcasted them there. They've worked really well. One thing with wildflowers, if I have to recommend anything, is being patient. I think a lot of times as gardeners, we are really wanting success and we want it early. We want to be able to see the fruits of our labor within a season. For most of the perennial wildflowers that we have here, it doesn't occur like that. This first year, while we did have success and we had flowers that came up and took off well, I don't think we got the color that we were shooting for. That's very typical because these are perennial. So they take usually two to three years, if not a little longer, really to establish before you see that bright color. So patience is very important when you're creating a wildflower garden. Are you cultivating the soil before you broadcast the seed? We actually just tilled the soil about an inch and then we went in and broadcasted a seed and just came over with some loose straw uh, so that it was able to germinate and the seed wouldn't wash away. And once those flowers started to germinate, we removed the straw. They have taken off very well. One of the other plants that I really forgot to mention, pignanthum, which is mountain mint, and we have several that are native to the United States, the Virginia mountain mints, native to the southeastern United States. Of course, like all mints, they're very hardy, reproduce very vigorously. You may have a small area where you wanted to plant a mint and you come back next year and your whole bed is full of mint. This plant is great because of that. It's got these really small white flowers, a magnet for beneficial insects. We would see anything from lady beetles, green lacewings, spiders. They're not an insect. Of course, they're an arthropod or arachnid. We call them generalists a lot of times because they might feed on those pests that are problems in our garden, but they also might feed on the good guys like the bees or, or the wasps, those pollinators that are in our garden as well. And that mountain mint, though, was super successful in our garden and attracting a lot of the beneficial insects that we've talked about. And very easy to germinate. And the great thing about mountain mint, too, is if you're interested in ever taking cuttings, if you like to propagate, this one does really well. You're able to kind of reproduce the plant as well each year. Do you have a strategy for containing it? That's the tricky part. This plant prefers full sun. My personal garden, what I've done is put it in an area where it gets filtered light, so it gets sun, but it doesn't get too much sun. And it's stayed pretty controlled because of that. If you put it in an area where you've got full sun, it's most likely to kind of take over a space. It's a magnet for honeybees as well. So really, really important. I'm a beekeeper. I, I started two years ago. I've got nine beehives and I'm up to my head and bees and honey. This plant really did well for me and my garden. And I was just so amazed at the amount of honeybees that were attracted to this plant as well. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? I think one of the things that, that people often do is they go in, they have no plan. And when I say that, a lot of times they want to choose the plants that maybe look the best or maybe ones that they've heard have done well from neighbors or friends. I think one of the things that oftentimes a lot of people miss, especially when they're planting in their own landscape, is thinking about the size that the plant will get at its adult stage. And one of the things that 
I always recommend is when you're starting that garden, think about the plants that you want to plant and make sure that you know the size that they're going to get. Make sure you know their growing habit, how they're going to grow, and then kind of planting accordingly with, of course, the ones that are going to be taller and more maybe shrub-like in the back. And then, of course, your annuals and perennials, some of your smaller planting and ground covers up front. And also being aware of where you're placing these plants too. If you're placing them around the side of the building, you don't want a a large tree that's going to grow into your building and thinking about that up front and really selecting plants accordingly. What is your earliest garden memory? I think I got my passion for horticulture from my grandmother. I worked usually in her garden throughout the summer. In fact, I remember saying, Grandma, if I help you in your garden, will you pay me? And she'd pay me every week to help her. I really learned a a lot from her. She had a lot of kind of the tried and true plants like roses and hydrangeas. And I learned from her and how to apply soil amendments and composting from her. That's one of my childhood memories. As I began to really kind of soak up horticulture more, I actually joined the Georgia 4-H program, worked with several really influential people in the ag agent in my county to learn more about horticulture. Those two people were very influential, my grandmother and then our ag agent at the time in my county, and really kind of influencing my passion for horticulture and for gardening. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession? During my sophomore year of high school, I was actually exposed to the University of Georgia Young Scholars Program. It's a six-week program in the summer for high school students. It goes June and July, and you can participate from your sophomore year to your senior year. You actually work with researchers or scientists on their campus, and they do this at the Griffin campus as well as in Tifton and in Athens. And I had the pleasure of working with Tony Johnson, who was the former horticulturist at the UGA Research and Education Garden. I believe he really helped to kind of develop my interest and really my horticulture knowledge. Later on, as I uh, progressed each year, I worked actually with Dr. Panisi who's a horticulture extension specialist there at the UGA Griffin campus. And what's crazy about this is she actually became my PhD advisor. Very important. Horticulture is one of the most important sciences. It's a great way to connect with people. And from horticulture, I believe you create those lifelong connections and you have those people in your life that really help to develop your horticulture knowledge and help you expand. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my personal garden, I have in my personal garden, I have some tried and true plants. I want to share with you, being the butterfly enthusiast I am, and three plants that have been tried and true for me in my garden are butterfly bush, budlias. They work really well. One of my favorite new cultivars that's out is it's called the budlia pugster. Really small budlia, so if you don't have a big space, it's great. It usually gets three foot by three foot, so not a whole lot of space. I've got one of those in my garden. Great plant, great butterfly attractor, great beneficial insect attractor. Lantana is my other go-to. I mentioned it before, but two of my favorite cultivars that I have are Lantana Miss Huff, which is a perennial, and Lantana Moselle. Those are two that do really well here in the southeast, one of my favorites. And then my other favorite plant, I hadn't had a chance to mention this one, but Coreopsis is another one. I don't feel like you can go wrong with the Coreopsis. Do very well. They are perennials. The beneficial insects and butterflies just love them. Those are my top three that I have and really appreciate having in my garden. 
What are your future plans for your garden? I'd love to build a large insect hotel and add that as a feature in my garden. And also, I'd like to add in more sitting areas. As I'm sitting in my garden, I'm seeing tons of honeybees going to my flowers. Really enjoy just sitting out and relaxing, enjoying seeing pollination take place. I think one of the things I really need to add is a hammock or some type of sitting area where I can really kind of soak up and enjoy the garden. If somebody wanted to take advantage of those education opportunities, what are some of those? Callaway Gardens is a nonprofit organization. Our mission statement is actually connecting man and nature in a way that benefits both. We really center around educating those that visit about horticulture and about environmental education. And one of the ways we do this is through providing educational workshops. We start our first workshop first week in September, and those will be carried out through the end of December. Those are considered our fall or winter workshop. And then we pick back up in the spring, usually in January, and those go through May. We have a workshop every weekend, and these workshops can vary topic, but they can be anything from your photography, basket weaving, container gardening, butterfly gardening. We have programs centered around our birds of praise. We have owl and raptor programs. And it's a really great way for both students as well as adults really to expand their knowledge on our environment and on conservation. Other than the, all right, other than the educational events that you have every Friday, is there any other opportunities or festivals that you have? Sure. We just had our Butterfly Festival in September. Great opportunity to come learn more about butterflies. If you're interested in really getting out to Callaway Gardens this fall, really two events that are coming up. One is our Harvest Fest. It will be October 9th, which is a Saturday from 10 to 3. We have a historic Pioneer Log Cabin. We really center this around education. There'll be a, a blacksmith out there talking about blacksmithing. We have a beekeeper that'll be out there. FDR State Park or Franklin D. Roosevelt State Park comes out and they talk about conservation. We have gardening opportunities. And so it's really a great way to learn about pioneer life, also about horticulture. So that's a great one. And it's definitely a family event. Another big event that is going to be a lot of fun and a great opportunity for families is our new pumpkin festival. So it's a new event that we rolled out and we're advertising it as gardens by day. So come to the gardens during the day and then glow by night. This festival is going to be near our beach and circus tent area. Uh, it consists of lighted pumpkins and shapes of butterflies, frogs, birds that you'll see. And you'll be able to walk through with your family and really be able to kind of enjoy all of fall. We'll have a pumpkin patch that you can walk through. It's just going to be a really, really neat event for families. We'll begin September 10th. And it'll be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then that will go through October 31st. Yeah, it sounds like a great no-fear type event. Yeah, this is definitely family-focused. It's not haunted, not going to be spooky. Our Christmas light celebration that we have, Fantasy and Lights event, this year it's going to be bigger and, and better than ever. We have some new scenes that'll be coming out. It's another great event that we have coming up. If you want to come out with your families and really enjoy the Christmas experience, and that'll start mid-November and it'll go through usually January 3rd. Now, it seems like we've talked about every season at Callaway 
for horticulture and all the events around there, but we haven't mentioned the obvious, and I guess that spring is that there's got to be something going on in the spring at Galloway. Spring Flower Fest was our new event this past year. It started in March. If you haven't been to Callaway and seen those beautiful native and cultivated azaleas, you've got to do so. So we have two gardens, the Overlook Garden, as well as the Callaway Brothers Azalea Bowl that feature our azaleas. We started in March. Once those started blooming, we continued throughout April and we had this beautiful flower mosaic wall that consisted of a lot of annual plants like sun patients and, and coleus in shapes of butterflies. So really great, beautiful kind of wow statement horticulture. And then we also had topiaries, outdoor butterfly garden. These consisted topiaries of hummingbirds, butterflies. We had some raccoons, bears. We And we had this giant peacock, too, with this beautiful tail that consisted of petunias. And it was really, really great event. Very successful. So, um, be on the lookout because this next spring, we're going to continue to improve our spring flower fest. I know they've got a lot planned, including plantings of daffodils. It's going to be one to definitely remember. Bethany, tell us how people may connect with you. I'm the Director of Education here at Callaway Gardens, and I oversee the Cecil B. Day Butterfly Center. And part of my role of education, the other part is I oversee the volunteer program at Callaway Gardens. We have a lot of opportunities, whether it's working in horticulture or at the Butterfly Center, and would love to have you as a volunteer at Callaway Gardens. And so the way you can connect with me is by emailing me. My email address is bharris at callawaygardens.com. This has been episode 25, Designing a Garden That Fights Off Harmful Insects with Dr. Bethany Harris on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Harris. You are wonderful. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works. 